if I'm correct. That's uh, what's your full name? Uh, my my true name is Charles, actually, but I um, I just everyone just started calling me Carlos after living in Peru, and at first I corrected them, and eventually I was like, whatever. <laughs> as so, Carlos is Spanish for Charles, you know, it's like people if. I don't know what they'd call you, but if your name was John or something, people would just start calling you Juan. Uh-huh. And it just, uh, it's just, it's probably the same thing. Like someone moves up to the United States or moves up to England or something and they just take a name that's easier for people to pronounce. Okay, well, Charles slash Carlos. No, just uh, call me Carlos. <laughs> Carlos. <laughs> okay, okay. So Carlos, welcome to Scholars in Spotlight. Uh, we have been thinking to change the name actually for the podcast, but uh, I don't know what's going to happen. So Wait, what's the podcast name? Well, it's called Scholars in Spotlight. So, oh, okay. so it's just the same thing, exactly how a name like Carlos given to you. That's exactly up to the podcast. Someone said it. Uh, I was just talking about Spotlight and Scholars and about some other thing. And then this, they just send it a, a big... Uh, newsletter to whole university saying, oh, it's the podcast called Scholars in Spotlight. I'm like, okay. People started ca- calling it Scholars in Spotlight. I'm like, okay, that's it. Man. All right. <laughs> well, I guess if that makes me a scholar, then <laughs> I'll, I'll accept that. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, I try to confirm it. Scholar, for some reason, according to English literary, uh, it, it just means someone who would go to school, nothing more. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) That's easier for me to qualify. Okay. So first, would you like to tell, like, where are you right now um, and uh, how you got there and uh, which which place, like what actual physical place you are working in and maybe how different your work is probably? Well, I mean, right now I'm in the spare bedroom of my father's house in uh, Massachusetts, um, where my wife and daughter and I have been staying. Um, But normally, I'm in Peru. I've lived in Peru since uh, 2004. And um, I live in the Amazon rainforest, or at least I have a house in Iquitos, Peru, which on a map was in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. I don't it doesn't look like the Amazon rainforest when you're in my house. You know, if you look out, there's houses and streets and stuff, but I can quickly get into the Amazon rainforest. And, um, and that's where I have a center called the Riospo Ayahuasca Retreat and Research Center, which I opened in 2017. Prior to that though, I ran centers um, also in the Amazon rainforest in two different locations. And I still operate one of those centers as well, which is the Inkankana Plant Medicine School. And all of that falls under the umbrella of the Ayahuasca Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization I started in 2009 with my wife and two indigenous coranderos. Um, We've been holding uh, retreats, healing retreats, educational courses, and and now last year hosting uh, research that was funded by the British uh, Medical Research Council and in the UK. And I think that you spoke with the lead researcher, Simon Ruffell, on one of your previous shows. So that's been an awesome experience. Uh, we're looking forward to getting back to start the phase two trials uh, of that research project, as well as to just get back to 
moving forward with life in general. Okay, so so shall we just then uh, go back a little bit and then uh, just maybe tell all the listeners that how did it start in all of it? Sure. Um, I was a very uh, successful person on paper. Um, I, I say that because like I lived in a really nice house. I, I had a great job in 2003. I was a production manager of a newsweekly newspaper similar to like the guardian or uh, the village voice or something. And um, I created that paper. I, it was like a artistic creative job for me to have. I had a salary and you know, I, I got paid well and, and had a, a secure job. I lived in a beautiful house. I drove a nice car. I had a cute girlfriend. I had like all these things that if you were in your twenties would make it seem like you were doing great but I wasn't uh, feeling great. I was actually feeling pretty miserable, like further and further, more and more miserable, um, which had led me to become a drug addict, uh, an opiate addict. So I was essentially trying to numb that miserable feeling with uh, drug use. And, but not many people knew that, you know, um, you know, I think there's probably a ton of secret drug addicts out there or alcoholics or whatever type of addiction you have. And, and you and maintain, you know, I was maintaining this like uh, appearance of togetherness and, until it really started to slip that year, 2003. And I just started, um, you know, going off the rails and, and that, led to me waking up in my car underwater because I had done, I'd been drinking and doing drugs and driving home from a bar. I blacked out behind the wheel, went off the road and um, drove my car into a river, woke up, had to jump out the window and swim to the shore. I had no idea where I was. And um, that really was a huge wake up call for me, uh, literally, because I woke up from being blacked out. But more importantly, it was a message that I needed to make a big change in my life or I was going to die. And um, a couple of weeks later, I got a message from a friend who was in Peru traveling. She had met two guys from Russia. They were working with a shaman who used ayahuasca. I had learned of ayahuasca in 2000. Actually, 1999 was when I first learned of ayahuasca um, from doing my own plant medicine research, which was always just something that interested me. And I had talked to my friend who is now in Peru about ayahuasca because it was such a fascinating topic. And she thought of me when she met these two men from Russia that were working with a shaman who used ayahuasca. So she decided that she was going to try it. And she contacted me to see if I wanted to fly down and drink ayahuasca with her and spend time in the Amazon. I took that to be a, an important uh, opportunity for me to make a drastic change in my life. And so I agreed to do that. And in June of 2003, I flew down to Iquitos, Peru, and um, I drank ayahuasca for the first time, which really saved my life completely. I realized that there was more to my drug addiction than I was aware of, uh, which 
I became aware of by remembering childhood traumas that I had buried or locked away somewhere. And I uncovered those and not just uncovered them, but saw the, the error of my interpretation in those trauma, traumatic experiences and was able to reinterpret them correctly or more accurately based on my adult uh, perspective and understanding of the world and then just essentially release those traumas and um, immediately you know started uh, the, the the much longer process of correcting all of the repercussions of a trauma you know it's one thing to to like heal yourself but if you've had a trauma for 20 years and then you heal that trauma there's 20 years of ripples of that trauma in every relationship that you have, you know, and that's much more challenging, I would say, to heal than the trauma itself, at least thanks to discovering ways of healing like ayahuasca. So my mind was, was really blown by the power of the healing process, my own experiences, you know, like it, it was uh, beyond mind opening and during that experience the the shaman or i'm going to start referring to him as corandero because that's the term they use um don juan uh saw in me this potential apparently what i was doing wasn't uh common to have such an accelerated process of healing and self-discovery and so he told me that it was my path to be a healer and he invited me to live with him and become his apprentice I accepted that offer because my experiences were so profound. And in January of 2004, I moved to Iquitos, Peru and began living with him and his family and studying plant medicine with him. After four years of studying with him, I started a retreat program um, with him that was quite small and just having like four or five people come and stay at the house with us. Um, but then in 2009, I met Don Enrique Lopez and my, I had begun to have my own personal views on healing and they weren't actually in line with my teachers anymore. I was kind of diverging in my own personal perspective. Uh, but when I met Don Enrique, his perspective and my perspective were just exactly aligned. And so we started the Ayahuasca Foundation together and we've been working together for the last 11 years. And it's wow. been an incredible experience. And I should say, like, Don Juan Tangoa Paima, my first teacher, will always be my teacher. It's not that I don't agree with him. You know, he's, he's an incredible person. And, you know, again, I, I talk a lot. I apologize. But just to, to be, I want to make sure, because I love him so much. Um, but his perspective was very Western in the sense that he felt like you needed to fight an illness you know, you needed to like destroy it. And, and after I was learning his perspective, but there was a point in my own discovery where I felt confident enough to think for myself, you could say, and I just didn't like it. It didn't, it didn't agree with me that I needed to like have a violent aspect of, of healing. It didn't seem like there should be violence involved with your healing. And so when Don Enrique spoke to me about his perspective, it was about raising your own vibrational frequency or filling yourself with so much light that darkness or illness or anything low vibration can simply can't exist in that environment. 
And that was, I was like, yes, you know, that's a beautiful way of looking at healing where you create something that's so wonderful in you that it's literally impossible for anything negative to exist in your environment. And, and that I, to this day, view as honestly a more accurate understanding of healing, but also something that resonates with me and by resonating with me creates an optimization of my own conscious contributions to the healing processes. And that's led me down some really wonderful roads of analysis into better understanding how we can improve the healing process for ourselves. Yeah, I mean, you, you gave a beautiful example of uh, a very extreme case, let's say, you know, what happened with you. But to be very honest, I think maybe even for some people, if it is even not so profoundly a, um, right on your face, I think this goes on a lot. Uh, as much as I'm discovering about trauma, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it somehow like drives a lot of our life in, in some way. Of course, there's different levels probably. And I, I would say, I mean, the reason why I just wanted to give two, two aspects to what you just said, just a bit of uh, research which is going on. I'm sure you, you've heard of Gabor Mate's uh, research the trauma and healing. So if anyone wants to see some of the empirical evidence and wants to see, you know, how it actually work in those studies and what other studies have been done, he's a good person to start with. Um, other than that, I mean, the path you are talking about actually comes from uh, you being probably, and, and I'm just guessing at this point, uh, sensitive around your stimulus and then uh and that's what i have seen many times just a common thing where someone is really sensitive and open to external experiences they try to then hide or somehow block their pain to actually just blocking uh, everything which is happening inside of them and then one of the ways is uh any kind of substances or addictive activity, whatever would it be for that person. But it's a very widespread phenomena. And I'm, I'm sure you can talk to it a little bit. The reason why I wanted to bring it back is because anyone sitting here listening, it's not like that there are others who are in this problem. There's, I think, a lot of people around us, some people even in our family member who we're not really aware of probably dealing with some sort of uh, trauma or, or issues like that. And uh, how many people and how this kind of centers and ayahuasca is helping probably might be good to give that kind of a pr uh, uh, perspective around this. Yeah, well, um, I feel like I'm in a very unique position in the sense that I operate and have for over a decade an ayahuasca healing retreat center working with indigenous coranderos but treating people from all over the world and we've had over a thousand people receive treatment and i've been able to witness that and make observations and it's been it's it's given me such a unique opportunity to really um, have my own personal analysis and and you know try to continuously develop uh my own ideas and perspectives on, on how healing happens. But 
you were saying like that we might know some people and that there's a lot of people, but I would just say all people because, you know, what constitutes a trauma, um, it doesn't have to be extreme. In fact, I, I talk about this a lot. You know, there's a spectrum and you have a, your personal spectrum and then there's like a universal spectrum. You could say that like this is the most extreme trauma that any human being has ever experienced and this is the most mild trauma that any human being has ever experienced. And every one of us has had experiences in that spectrum. But within our personal spectrum, I can't understand what it's like for someone who had that incredibly extreme trauma. I admit my trauma on that spectrum wouldn't be that far towards the extreme negative, we'll call it. But it doesn't really make a difference because I only can know my personal spectrum. And for me, the, that end of the spectrum, I'll call the worst. And that's all there is to it. For me, that is the worst. That's the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. It messed me up the most. And that's it. You know, that, that's it. So it doesn't really make a difference whether or not, you know, I had some horrendous experience like we know has happened to certain people. All I need to know is that I got messed up the most by this particular experience. And then what do you do with it? You know, what happens as a result of it? How do you react as a result of it? And so across the board, every single person that I've seen commit to a healing process like the ones that we offer with our programs has to address those traumas in order to achieve the healing that they want. And in order to achieve the outcome that they want, they have to correct the interpretations that were inaccurate that caused them to go astray or really to crack their vessel of love. And we should all love ourselves. It shouldn't even be up for discussion. You know, it should just be inherent in our identity that we love ourselves. You don't have to ask a child, a small child, do you love yourself? It's almost like a meaningless question because it's just inherent in their identity. But when you have a severe trauma, now it isn't inherent anymore. Now there's a crack and this love is coming out of the, your vessel. And now you're going to seek ways to try to refill what's pouring out. And addiction is a very popular way, you know. You try to put something in that makes you feel good, even though it's not actually like truly making you feel good, it's enough to try to make you feel like you filled the cup up again. And yeah, it's just going to leak out and you fill it up again. And that's what the meaning of, an, of addiction is. You got to keep doing it again and again. And it doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol. It can be some behavior, something. Or maybe that's why we seek out people that are probably unhealthy for us, but at least they fill something. You know, they, 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 it's so complicated and I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but, but that's my understanding of it. And so if you can fix that vessel, which is by reinterpreting our experiences or in the sense of ayahuasca, by seeing who we really are, which is a spirit, 
if you can see your spiritual identity, yourself, in its truest form, with no body, just the, the light, it's impossible to not love it. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just like, it's just like looking at the sunset. You can't say, you can't look at the sunset and be like, that's ah, ugly. You know, <laughs> like it, it's just impossible because it, it literally is just the perfection of nature. And, and so once we have that experience where we're like, that's what I am. Oh my God. You know, I am a magical <laughs> creation of God. Yeah. Or however you want to describe it. Yeah. But what the most important part is that you can't help but love it. And so then that begins the process. Now I'm going to use that love and then go back to all the pain, all of the, the, the problems with that love. And I'm going to patch everything up. That love is just going to like fix this vessel. And it's not instantaneous and there's no magic bullets it's work but one of the biggest problems we have is that we're trying to fix pain with pain you know and it doesn't take a genius to know that if if you don't come from a place it's like you can't shine light on into darkness without the light you know you actually need the light and and that's what having a psychedelic experience can provide because essentially to me, a psychedelic experience and especially ayahuasca, obviously that's what I'm going to be talking about the most increases your sensory capacities. It increases your sensory perceptive abilities. So you can see beyond the visible spectrum. You can hear beyond the audible spectrum. You can smell beyond, you can taste beyond, you can touch beyond and you can feel beyond the whatever, emotional spectrum, if you want to call it that. And so you can become more aware of yourself and the world around you in a way that's literally like biologically impossible because we simply have limitations as to how much we can perceive. But the psychedelic experience expands that possibility. And in doing so, it allows us to create this hypersensitivity state and in that hypersensitivity state, we can achieve things that wouldn't just normally be impossible for us to achieve. And that's kind of the magic of what ayahuasca and, and other psychedelics allow us to uh, enter into that, that realm of hypersensitivity because the traumas are typically occurring in hypersensitivity states. You know, when you have a trauma, you're not just like, and that's when I had a trauma, you know, there's usually a very intense emotional um, state of fear usually. And, and there's a biological explanation for having a hypersensitivity state when your state of fear is heightened. Because, you know, if you're an animal and you have tremendous fear, that's going to be the time where you want to hear the best. That's where you're going to want to see more than normal. That's where you're going to want to have all of your senses like at their peak expanded to their maximum because something might be about to kill you. And so you want to be able to achieve that, but you can't exist that way. You know, you can't stay in that state all the time. And if you create a trauma with a hypersensitivity state, you cannot access that trauma 
without also replicating or overriding that hypersensitivity state. It's like if you, if you go down to a level of depth in the ocean and you see a creature, which is, let's just say that's your trauma. Well, unless you go down to that depth again, you're probably not going to be able to interact with it. You might see it from up above. You know, you might see, oh, there it is, but, but you won't be able to make a change to it. And so the hypersensitivity state is the huge part of the puzzle of why psychedelics are so great at healing trauma. If you sit on a couch in a relaxed state talking to a therapist, you might talk for years and you're just, you're just snorkeling. You're just swimming on the surface trying to look down at those things that are too deep for you to access. But ayahuasca and other psychedelics, they put on the scuba gear. You know, and that's <laughs> that lets you like actually go yeah. down deep. And, and once you go down deep, it's almost impossible not to interact with them because you're actually at that level. So you're they're right there, kind of floating around, you could say, in your consciousness. So uh, beautiful. I mean, you mentioned all of the points, and I've talked to the, some of the two people who were doing PhD in something related to memory because memory is really close to having trauma and how sometimes they describe it, how schemas join together and then suddenly you have a stimuli and then that bundle of neurons gets activated and there is no way you can, and this is a biological explanation and that of course has psychological implications. Um, and that's one way of, you know, like, as you said, like, there's just one level of trauma, which, you know, someone can get like in war or childhood abuse, but you're right, it doesn't matter. It's a lot of your own subjectivity, because that's all what you know at that time. And this is widespread, even in a way now, in, and now I think every side, like to be very honest now, uh, so I've lived in Pakistan, I know people from India, half my family, you know, came from there. So there's some ties there. So I'm talking to people in uh, Middle Eastern places. That's, that I think that in that hyper-rationalistic individualism, where you are self-critical, it's now not just a Western thing, to be very honest. Even India, it's, it's actually really, I can see it over there also. Like when I came from there to here, I actually didn't know about it that well. And this was seven years ago, uh, but I, I, I actually was a little self-critical uh, just because I have grown up with some of the teachers who are from uh, West and of course I watch films and all the globalization material, uh, sorry, uh, media, but not really at that level. By living here, I could really hear it really strong, the, the self-critical chatter. And I think and that's where you, that's what you were mentioning. It's, it's actually everywhere, nearly. If you look at that, that's just everywhere. It's just, and that's where, that's, it's just the basic crack in human conditioning is that's what you see it. And you're right. Like we try, even if we have a genuine experience, to be very honest, sometimes, even if you have an experience of awe and rapture, but if you have that crack, and that's what it is. Psychedelics, I think, sometimes like invites you to that garden, as you're saying, they, they see you what you really could be. But it's not a walk in a park. That's that's what that's that's a good thing I think to mention here is that you still gotta take the steps when you come out of it. 
And I think uh, that's when you listen to the message, you come back, and you don't ignore anything what you have heard. Because if you really respect the message you get, then you got to work on what you got from that ceremony or from medicine. But I think that would be a good point to know how you actually uh, conduct those ceremonies. I mean, what are your ethics? How different there are in Peru itself? Like different type of ways uh, people approach this kind of healing trauma ceremony. And also are, are there, I mean, I was, uh, I, I checked, anyone of course want to check, they can check your website. You've written a set of rules uh, that if you're coming uh, to the center, how to prepare for, for something like that. I mean, if you want, uh, if you could also, you know, while answering, explain a bit about why have you chosen those ones? Well, that's a couple. There's two main parts to that. I'll try to take the first one first. Um, so I, to me, the aspect of the tradition, you know, ceremony is is one very noticeable and, and often recognized aspect of the tradition. But there's a, a very elaborate collection of ideologies and methodologies that surround the use of the medicine. And, and to me, that is something that does not get nearly enough attention. In fact, maybe we should be devoting more attention to that than to the actual medicine being served. Uh, and I say that because we're so lacking, Western medicine is so lacking in any sort of tradition. Um, very typical experience. If you're suffering from depression, your doctor writes a prescription and you buy these pills by yourself and you go home and you just take one. And that's it. There's no, no one even says, think about it. You know, there's no, nothing that surrounds it. You could take that pill while you're driving a car. You could take that pill and then drink some orange juice with your breakfast. You could take, you know, whatever. There's no, nothing, you know, you just take the medicine. It's, it's all very physical based. It's all very kind of, I would call it like one dimensional in the sense that, yeah, the, the pill does it all. The pill does, it goes in your body and it just does what it's supposed to do, which is very surprising to me. I mean, it's almost, how do you not like criticize Western medicine when we know of the placebo effect to such a degree that we formulate all of our research all you know all that that same pharmaceutical drug got tested in a double blind placebo test why why do you need to do a double blind placebo test well we know that if you didn't <laughs> how you think would have a huge influence over the effectiveness of the medicine oh so how you think has a huge influence over the medicine yeah. why don't we look at that and incorporate that to our benefit. You know, it's just so, it's so surprising and really kind of like, could we drop the ball anymore where we're like, yeah, consciousness is incredibly powerful. Let's ignore it. You know, like what, what are you thinking? So I'm very, very happy that we have access to ancient medicine or ancestral medicine because they didn't ignore it. In fact, they focused tremendously on it and that's why you don't drink ayahuasca and while driving your car or before you eat breakfast or whenever <laughs> you only drink ayahuasca in a ceremony 
And what's a ceremony? A ceremony is this incredible consciousness enhancement process that increases the ability of consciousness to activate and optimize the healing potential of the medicine you're taking. <sighs> Sounds like a great idea to me, you know? Like, so by looking at the ceremony and by looking at the other elements of the ideologies and methodologies that are surrounding the actual ingestion or whatever part of the treatment it is, it might not necessarily be something you ingest, that has so much value, I would say, for Western medicine. So what is a ceremony? Well, a ceremony starts right off the bat with preparation. You know, you know you're going to do a ceremony. And so hopefully, like, as I describe this, you can think two lines. What I'm talking about and how we, have, we lack that. So if you want to stay with, like, the antidepressant medication, you're going to take Prozac, you know. And so is there a preparation? No, there's no preparation. But with ayahuasca, yes. So you know that you're going to take ayahuasca. You plan it ahead. There's maybe months ahead, but just for the sake of this example, we'll say days. So three days before you start changing your diet, you know, three days before you start thinking more about what you're going to be going through. You start already like you're already kind of like testing the waters out. You know, you're like figuring out this snorkeling gear already because you know that you're going to go deep and you know that there's and, and there's an ideology inherent in that that is really powerful because you're already starting to convince yourself that you're going to be healed. You're already setting yourself up to have a powerful healing experience. And that's incredibly important, really important. Not only that, but there is an inherent respect because of the tradition because it's an indigenous ancestral tradition passed on from generation to generation, there's an automatic respect. And that medicine is made from plants. And plants are perfect. No one thinks that plants are messed up. There's nothing wrong with plants. We just naturally believe, and we experience it every day when we look out at trees in a forest or walk in a park or look at a flower, it's always perfect. It's just beautiful. That's what the medicine's made out of. So all of these elements are actually contributing to our preparation to actually take the medicine. We trust the medicine. We have faith in the medicine. We have faith in the tradition. We have respect. All of these really positive consciousness building, like positive consciousness enhancement ideas, ideologies are, are, are already seeping in. You know, whereas Prozac, man, good luck if you think that people are trusting it or people are having faith in it or most people hate it. You know, imagine the aspect of preparation you see when you, just by opening the bottle to take the pill out, you feel this disgust for it. Like, you, I hate this, you know, and that's the, the reality for so many people. They're opening a pill bottle with a, a state of hatred, and then they're going to take that. And, you know, in terms of the placebo effect, yeah, if you hate the medicine you're taking, how well is it going to work? But ayahuasca, it's different because there's this wonderful tradition built in. You almost, you love it. You like love ayahuasca. You're grateful for it. You're grateful that it exists and that people discovered it and were able to 
to master it and like all of this is built in. And so by the time you actually get to the physical space where you're going to ingest the ayahuasca, there's already been, hopefully, hopefully you haven't not been thinking about it, but most people have. And there's already a buildup. You've already set yourself up with a really good opportunity for healing. And then you go into the space. Well, the space isn't your kitchen. You know, the space is a designated space. In Peru, it's called a maloca. It's a ceremonial building built for ayahuasca ceremonies. That's the purpose of the space. You could call it a temple. Some people refer to it as a temple. In the same sense that a church is built for religious practice, when you walk into a church, it's not the same as when you walk into a McDonald's. You know, something happens. You know that that's the purpose. It's built into the architecture and the ideology and methodology of what happens in the church you're familiar with. Even if you had never been to a church service before, chances are if you walk into a church, there will be a difference in how you perceive your experience inside it. You know, there will be some sort of reverence. There will be some sort of respect built into just walking into the space or a temple or a mosque or whatever. That's what happens also. So you walk into a maloka, automatically you start, your behavior starts to change. And, and so again, there's like, here's how this tradition is building that into. You take your spot. People are, tend to be getting ready, you know, again. You're getting ready, you're preparing, you know, even if it's just like, I want my bucket here and my water bottle here and my toilet paper here, you're putting thought into this process, you know, you're putting thought, which is all putting into what's going to happen when I drink ayahuasca. So all of this starts to combine. Now, the, the corandero comes in, and he starts to do usually an elaborate process to prepare his tools, you could say, the medicine itself, the cup that's going to be served in, some of the other implements that he most likely has or she. And, and you can watch that even if you're not paying too much attention, it's impossible to notice that there is something happening right now. You could call it religious, you could call it spiritual, you could call it whatever, but there's definitely something that's going on that is also going to contribute to the fact that this is preparation for an experience, something that has the potential of being profound. When you go up and you actually receive the cup of medicine, there's a direct instruction to speak to the medicine, to inform the medicine of why you're taking it. They call it intention. So you want to be stating your intention, not out loud, although you can, but in your mind, you're stating your intention. Now, because you know that's going to happen, unless it's your very first ceremony and no one has told you anything, which is rare now, but you've probably been thinking about your intention also, you know, as you've been following a different diet, as you've been like doing some changes in behaviors leading up to the ceremony that are important to improving your health and, and more importantly, improving your experience. Part of that has also been to discover your intention, like figuring out why it is exactly that you want to do this medicine. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes you have to dig deeper a little bit, especially in the case of trauma. You know, you might say, well, I want to treat addiction, but you actually mean I want to treat the cause of addiction. 
And so now you state your intention. The moment before you ingest it, you have put into the forefront of your consciousness the purpose for ingesting it. Now let's go back to Prozac. When you take the pill, are you thinking about what you want that pill to do? Or are you thinking anything else? Like maybe what's watching on TV or I need to take this right turn or is the train on time or whatever, you know? But very rarely are you connecting the two. And so you're not helping your body know why the substance is going in. And you can question the mind-body experience. I think the, the placebo effect has already done that scientifically proven. There is definitely a mind-body experience without a doubt. It is like scientific fact. And so why not try to enhance it? I'm taking this medicine because I want it to heal this. I want it to help me to achieve this. I want it to give me the strength so that I can face this. I want it to help me, whatever, you know, but it's there and you know it. And then this, then it goes into your body. Now your body knows it. Your body knows, hey, this is the stuff. He just said what, what it's for. So let's, you know, send it to those places because that's, we know exactly what it's for. And all of these things, I hope it's become obvious, contribute to the effectiveness of the medicine. Okay, so now you've taken the medicine. What do you do? Well, the lights go out. Everyone has taken the medicine. The Corandero especially has taken the medicine, which is a whole other world of understanding because imagine if your doctor was taking the Prozac with you. But the lights go out. You can't see. I can't see who's next to me anymore. I can't see even the person who's leading the ceremony anymore. What's the point of even keeping my eyes open? So where am I going to look? I'm going to look at what's going on. Yeah, I'm not going to be aware. I'm not going to get distracted by all the stuff going on that I'm normally distracted. I'm not going to want to change the channel or check out the new YouTube video or whatever. I'm just going to check out what's happening with me. I'm going to increase my sensitivity. When you're in the dark, you increase your sensitivity. It's also like well-documented. So now I'm going to like increase my sensitivity, become more aware of what's going on with me. Now also, what's going on with you probably isn't going to be all pleasant. Some of it might be, but some of it might not be. But again, thanks to that tradition, oh, I feel nausea. Well, that's part of it. If I throw up, I'm going to be throwing up stuff that I don't want to have in my body. So it's okay. I'm okay with nausea. If I need to throw up, I'll throw that up and I'll, be, I'll thank that, that I don't have that crap in me anymore because that's obviously stuff that I shouldn't have. It's such a well-constructed tradition of ideologies and methodologies that it just makes that medicine work so much better. Now, what if you took Prozac and you had nausea? You know? Or what if you had chemotherapy, which is known to, to, to cause nausea? Are you thinking, great, I'm going to get rid of some of this toxin. I'm going to get rid of this cancer, which could be a part of it. That would be an awesome part. Like, but no, you call the nurse. Uh, I'm not feeling good. Give me something else to get rid of that, you know, and so that I can just keep watching TV during my chemo process. So all of that, I hope, like exemplifies that the ceremony is incredibly important. And how you take medicine, not just ayahuasca or any other psychedelic, but especially 
but all medicine and all attempts at healing need to have a nourishment, an optimization, an enhancement of the consciousness elements, the mind-body connection to increase the effectiveness of that medicine. And that's the beauty of having the ayahuasca tradition because it's one of the unique traditions left. You know, there's not many uh, ancestral or indigenous healing traditions left that are actually fully intact. Um, but because the Amazon rainforest is such a formidable place, it wasn't so easy to conquer that place. And thankfully, the tribes that lived in that um, area were able to hold on to and have pride in their selves. And that's the story of the Shipibo. The, the Shipibo tribe is the, the Coranderos that we work with. They understood that they, they did know they weren't so easy to lure away with technology or like the fancy shiny stuff that the Westerners brought them to try to convince them to be Christians. Sorry, but missionaries definitely kind of ruined a lot of indigenous uh, culture. And, but the Shipibo, no, they, 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 they knew that what they knew was special and that they weren't mm -hmm. going to be easily, uh, turned away from their ancestral knowledge. And thank God, because yeah. we still have that. And now they're sharing it with the world. And we're seeing this whole resurgence of ancestral tradition or the desire to reconnect with our ancestry and our ancestral tradition um, and look at the, the world differently, especially with just the whole concept of spirit, which wouldn't that be awesome if that word could make its way back into our paradigms of reality or within science at least. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, I was about to ask that how important it is the, the ceremony and how important it is to heal, of course, but also to connect with others and have this sense of tribe, which I think most of us even here now, everyone, if, if you tell them, if you go to any kind of a festival, if you go to any kind of ritual, you would feel that your body is somehow desiring some sort of a fundamental hug of some sort, which is just there all the time. And that is that your tribe, and I don't mean tribe in a way that sometimes you have my tribe and then, you know, the others are bad. I meant bonding with other beings who are, as much of a universe as you are and it's i can't i mean of course when this happened is it's it must have benefits that's how we evolve that's how we communicate so we are connected and i think the ceremony somehow builds those bonds i'm sure that people who went through these ayahuasca ceremonies they some of them at least even if they don't like each other before or, or didn't care about it i'm sure that they come out of it there is some sort of a respect, even though, you know, it's, uh, it's not like you're not going to you know, be in touch with every one of them. But at least you had that hint of how that other stranger can someone who you next day share something so intimate who you thought you might never share even with yourself. And that's a, a beautiful bounding um, somehow existence, just like just a way to exist. And I think, yeah, it's it's not really here at all. Like that's what we have done mostly as yours. You mentioned, and even in our small things, we kind of got rid of most of the ceremonies and uh, have, have logged ourselves slowly out of every ritual. 
and the, the ritual is really just a shallow echo of what it really was. I mean, you don't even recognize that this is what you are doing was supposed to be a ritual. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, this is. Well, I'm not an anthropologist either, but I, it, it would be hard to imagine that it was any different than the religions that we have today are based on shamanic practices. And, you know, before we had the religions, we had what would probably be called shamanism. And shamanism was around the world and inherent or included in shamanism was plant medicine. And from that, I believe all of the religions were essentially formed. And except that the plant medicine oftentimes disappeared. And, and maybe that is the the real detriment of what happened to religion um, because without the plant medicines, then it was much easier to create hierarchical structures, structures of power. And that's a, a really cool element that, that drew me to shamanism because I have a degree in philosophy and I studied philosophy of religion. And to me, that's when I first really like got interested in plant medicine and especially shamanism because everyone can have the same experience. And I was so, I, I, I had so much respect for my teacher and was so grateful for him, Don Juan, my first teacher that I mentioned, because even when I started studying with him, after a ceremony, he would ask me, you know, how the ceremony went, if I had visions. And if I had a vision or an insight, or I felt like something, I would share it with him. And he would really listen to it. Not just listen to it, but sometimes he would say, I think you're right, and tomorrow let's do that. If it was referring to a, a patient or someone that was in the ceremony, if I had some insight, I was like, oh, actually, I, you know, I, I think that that person should take this medicine. He would say, yeah, I think you're right. Let's do that tomorrow let's do that and I was like wow man like who am I you know like the, our culture the way we're raised the teacher knows everything and they give a tiny piece of it to you but this was totally different he was a student and I was a student and yeah he'd been doing it longer but the information was accessible to both of us equally and and that to me you know who 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 wouldn't want that to be their experience you know to have accessible information yeah and you didn't have to have a, a seven degrees and be 80 years old you could actually have the information accessible to you and that to me was the way that shamanism always was everyone had access to it and of course we had shamans because they were devoting their lives to understanding that information but it didn't mean that people couldn't access it it's just that this person has been doing this for a long time. It makes total sense. But once you removed the ability, once you removed the ability for someone to enter into the hypersensitivity state and only the shaman reserved the ability to do that, then it was almost natural that there would be a, a hierarchy built like this power structure. And I think that's what you see. And even like, I'm not a student of a religion, but I, I feel like the, the Hebrews 
there was the anointing oil, uh, which kind of became famous with Jesus Christ, at least with Christianity, because he anointed anyone. But I feel, and I'm not totally sure, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think that only the priests in the Hebrew religion or in the Jewish religion were allowed to use the anointing oil, which, of course, was a plant medicine. It was made of five plants, and it was something that was ingested through the skin, you know, but it was something absorbed. And I definitely think, like, it had an effect it wasn't like symbolic you know it had a real physiological action and and so anyway what i'm getting to is that when people started to go away from ritual i feel like they probably were right to do so because at that point they were revolting not against the religion or the rituals of it but against the oppression and the oppressive nature that the religion had had grown into. So they were like, screw this. Like, you're you're like just telling us to do this stuff, but I don't even I don't see the purpose of it. I don't feel it. I'm just like going through these weird motions for no reason. And that's because there really wasn't. The reason was taken away from them, you know? And so I I want to say, like, I understand why there was this kind of rejection of ritual. Because the purpose of the ritual was lost, the meaning of the ritual was lost, but not in every case. And in this sense, the indigenous cultures in the Amazon, and most especially the Shipibo culture, yeah, they have ritual, but you can experience it. Like you can, you can follow a ritual and then afterwards say, oh man, I see why they do it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, like that makes so much sense. What They're very smart to have that ritual, you know? And so that's what we need to revive in our own lives. We need to have purpose felt ritual back in our lives, but people are doing it. You know, there's there, I mean, I'm very hopeful to be honest about the future. Like I, I feel like not, it it won't take such a long time for us to remember those and to reconnect. And essentially that's what it really is beyond tribe. You know, I think you could actually criticize tribes because there was always a, a kind of a, a superiority complex, you know, each tribe kind of felt like they were better than the other tribe. But, but beyond that is the, the real core message of it all. And the tribes, they didn't really think about that, but we're, we're so lost that that is actually much more important, which is that we are nature. We are made of nature. You know, we, we actually, talk about nature as if it's like outside or over there you know I like it when I go into nature but we are that nature you know we are animals and we are we have that connection accessible to us just like the information is accessible in shamanic ceremonies that information is accessible all the time and it it's because we're part of a living organism we're like a single cell in that living organism. And, and we can decide to turn it off and, and not listen to it and not receive it, which a lot of people are doing, whether they're conscious of it or not. But we can also decide to tune into it. And when we tune into it, trust me, the earth is just 
dying to have us tune in and and change the way that we're acting uh, according so that that giant organism that we're a part of can become healthy again. And in doing so, all of us will become healthy again. And, and I do feel like we've made like great strides just in the last two generations. We've made really great strides towards doing that again. Tons of, tons of research. I mean, I mean, my goodness, the last decade is really, you can really call it a second Renaissance in that way. I actually, actually have a question for you. And this is, uh, it just came in my mind when you were talking about nausea. Uh, and funny enough, you mentioned that oh, you're sitting for the ceremony, and you know you're in your water bottle and bucket, <laughs> and probably most of the people, I, th- I think this is a bit of a different audience because this is a university's podcast, so a lot of uh, students and staff would listen to it, uh, which I am sure because I had a lot of conversations with so many people. Uh, this is one just way of how I grew up over there. You just have conversations with people who you see, who you meet. So I also do that here. Uh, and I think many people are still, I, I'm, I'm sure that in our, in, in one part, ayahuasca has become extremely popular for sure. But I, I, it's, it's uh, yeah, I, I think that with this audience still, there will be a lot of people who would have just heard about it as a name nothing more than that so so um yeah you mentioned bucket and everyone would be like why why are you preparing bucket for for but 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 the question i have is actually related to to um vomitings so i i also had a bit of an experience let's say uh into ptsd uh trauma Something happened extreme, really extreme, after long, small processes, and then something um, was building in internally, and then suddenly external shock happened here in UK, and uh, yeah, fear, of course. It's, it was uh, pretty devastating at that point for me subjectively. And, uh, and then I didn't know that, because I never thought, and this was uh, when I was... Uh, 27 you know three years ago four years ago 27 28 something like that uh and until that point i was doing a lot of information collecting and research into conscious altering experiences because that's where i wanted to go further and i thought of me like uh, someone who would never have a, a traumatic experience or or never felt really depressed that much of course, whole gamut of psychological experiences, lows and highs. But, I mean, really into the grasp of fear itself, where you just don't see even the glimmer of light. I, I mean, I've heard that and I, I thought, oh, no, this is definitely not what I feel. And then that happened. And then I understood it, really understood it. So I actually take it as a really, it changed me from everywhere, definitely, um, rewrote many of the source codes. Uh, otherwise, there was no option. It was like either die or change. So that's how it was, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, moving forward, you know, I got a peek into this. And then what happened after one year? So I, I was talking to Simon and other researchers into trauma, everyone I can access, because I was already aware of the network 
and MDMA uh, came up to be a good treatment. And so, so I was like, okay, that's brilliant. But while this is happening, and this is, this is the reason why I mentioned all of it is because I want to tell you that why am I asking this question? And also it is something which is very anecdotal. So I'm not really sure. And that's the reason why I'm asking. It's because, so I've heard uh, Robert, Robert Spolsky. He is, uh, he is an entomologist. I'm not sure, but he studies behavior and he's done a lot of research in uh, bonobos and uh, chimps. And uh, he talks about that there's a, a brain uh, there's a part of our brain which is insular cortex and that's the part of our brain which before our prefrontal cortex was uh, evolved used to determine if we have taken something poisonous hence the moment you take something poisonous your insular cortex say disgusting uh, sorry uh, something extremely uh, poisonous. So it just activates the response in our stomach and our body to throw everything out. And it's funny that when he was mentioning it, um, he said that what has happened is that all our, uh, your philosophy, so all of our concepts, our mental constructs have been overlaid. It's like, a, it's, it's just that, um, Many of our concepts, which separates us, as you are saying, from who we truly are, have to be fit in somehow in places uh, which are meant for also other jobs. So it's somehow interlinked. Uh, this is just how he's, he's explaining. So he said, if you are a chimp, you don't feel disgust in a way how humans feel it. So if you see a bomb goes off or, or some child shooter, you would feel disgusted by it for weeks and you would feel it in your stomach. But if a chimp does something like they definitely think, again, like it's our language, we'll say it's bad, but they just think it's violent and they will chase around uh, the other chimp and then they would just leave it. And that's it, nothing, that's over. Uh, now, um, what I was experiencing sometimes is that this again, self-criticism because of trauma, a lot of self-criticism sometimes self-hatred let's say and that kind of hatred created some sort of a disgust in self-disgust and it was funny that when i'm extremely under trauma and i uh, like allow myself to just you know let's just process it and be open let's say i'm somehow some some positive thing happens i feel um a lot of uh like empty vomits uh, like maybe 10, 20, sometimes it goes to even 30. And suddenly I feel like relaxed. And it was, and this is really disconnected, both of them, both of these things. And uh, uh, some, some of the other uh, research around in ayahuasca, which they were saying that how, you know, ayahuasca tells you to love yourself and what kind of self-judgment, uh, how people describe a lot of dialogue has to do very, a lot of dialogue, which I've heard, is to do with that. And with this kind of studies with Robert Swarovski, and he has done it, of course, in um, some sort of, uh, I'm not sure, it, it, it's to do with some sort of MRIs or fMRIs where you show disgust and that's the part which activates. So that's how they found out that, oh, the part which allows you to throw up as a poisonous thing in your body, 
is the part which also stores the information where you feel that there is something disgusting in your body. Anyway, this is a, just a just something which I was hearing from two different places, and then I felt it, and I was like, I wonder if there is some connection to this. Well, I'm not going to be able to answer that for you. I, it makes total sense that there is. I'm not that familiar, you know, with the with the biology or neurology, um, but. I have certainly thrown out a lot. I mean, I've drank ayahuasca over 700 times. Um, I look more, I guess, more like simplistically. I have a dog, for example. I think anyone listening who has a dog has probably witnessed this at some point, that your dog, for whatever reason, goes and starts eating certain grasses or plants and then purposely like causes itself to throw up. Um, throwing up is not like, it's, it's weird because we say I got sick usually as a way of saying I threw up, but it's actually quite the opposite. Um, throwing up is your body's way of writing itself of, you know, exactly what you're saying, like getting rid of, you could call it a poison, but whatever you want to call it, something that your body does not want. And, and all of our excretions are doing that. You know, like there's a reason why our bodies get rid of stuff, whether we're sweating it or blowing our nose or coughing it up or throwing it up or, or peeing or pooping it out. You know, like all of the excretory processes, that's stuff that we don't want. Like our body prefers not to have that. We'll be healthier if we get rid of it. And um, the the experience, though, with throwing up with ayahuasca takes it to another level. Like what I just said was kind of the basics of our uh, anatomy, you could say, or the systems, the physical systems of our body. But we don't really get into the emotional systems. Although, just like you said, and it's the same with me, like almost every one of us knows that there's got to be some connection to the gut because when you feel stressed or when you feel particular emotions, your gut like starts to feel something. In fact, we have a statement, the gut feeling. I've got a gut feeling. Like that's not, we didn't just make that up and it's meaningless, you know, like there's, there's real reality into that. So again, that's like beyond the mind, body, emotional body, stress the same way. Like sometimes when I would be really stressed, I would go to the the bathroom and and do it sounds like exactly what you're talking about you know just like dry heaving or into the sink and if someone saw me they'd be like whoa dude are you okay you know but I but I was so like familiar with it that I'd be like yeah it's fine yeah just like when I'm I'm super stressed right now you know <laughs> yeah. and um, and so you know I definitely feel like I I can't say you know from a biological perspective or or scientific perspective like what's really going on but I know from my own interpretations of my experiences especially in ceremonies sometimes stuff just gets like overwhelming and I don't mean just on a physical level like that there's you know, I don't really feel like there's a separation, but like the mental level and the emotional level and the physical level, all of this is just this like overwhelmingness in a ceremony and then vomiting and like, oh, like it's over. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, and so if that is related to uh, an issue like a trauma, for example, then 
now it's almost impossible not to relate the expulsion of that as well. You know, so I, I'm very, very open-minded. You know, I, I'm, I, I see a true power in the way that we think. Probably the most powerful element on the planet. I would say yes, consciousness, nothing compares. And, but I'm also open because I, you never want to be locked in, you know, when, when you're talking about consciousness, like you always want to be open because there, there could be a better, you know, there, there's always could be something that will bring you a better outcome. And you, if you're locked into a particular belief system, then you, it will be a struggle to, to get to something that might provide you a better outcome. But um, I do look at things in a particular way. I do lean towards certain things. And I definitely feel like by throwing up and by having the ideology built into the tradition, the way I described it earlier, you just very easily can say that was my addiction. Yeah. You know, that was the demon that I've been struggling with. That was the thing. And I know without a doubt in my mind, because I can turn a flashlight on and look at it in the bucket. That is definitely a bunch of stuff that just came out of me, you know, like hands down. What is it exactly? Well, that that's open for, for discussion. You know, I definitely have thought that a snake came out of my mouth in a ceremony and I've wanted to like, was that a snake? You know, like if I look in there, is there really a snake? You're almost let down that it's not. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but to me, the most important thing is always the outcome. You know, like however you get there isn't as important to me as, as the outcome. And, and I know I've had experiences where I was like, I talked about having addiction. That was the kind of the primary problem, but I had a digestive issue for three years prior to going down to ayahuasca uh, to drink ayahuasca in Peru as well. And, and throwing up combined with some of my visions, you know, and, and, and understanding or interpreting my experiences definitely played a big role in healing that. Like it ended when I threw up and then I never had the, the uh, digestive issue again. Now, I was throwing up a squid that I found in my stomach. That was a very big part of it, too. So I had like a connection. You know, I had seen that there was a squid in my stomach and that the squid was like blocking up the hole out of my stomach so that it could live in that water. And that water was getting so murky and stuff that that's why I was having these digestive issues. And I removed the squid, threw up, you know, like the squid was no longer in my system. And then I never had the digestive issues again. I don't know what happened. <laughs> you know, like I, I don't, I yeah, don't yeah, even yeah. care. Like yeah, I, yeah. that's what it looked like to me. And that's what I'm going to say, because that's the best I can do. Like yeah. we have an experience that describe it as we saw it. What really happened? I have no idea. Maybe there was, I'm, I'm totally, the best I can do is that there really was some creature that I recognized to be a squid a parasite perhaps in my stomach and it was wreaking havoc and I did remove it. And, but I don't even care, you know, because all I know is that from that day on, I never had that, those digestive issues again. And so there's real power in how we view 
our processes. And just like I was talking about with chemotherapy, like I think it would be easy to improve the effectiveness of chemotherapy if you always did chemotherapy in a ceremony and you didn't go to a hospital, you went to a ceremony place, the chemotherapy, the, the mechanics of it, exactly the same, but you turn the lights off, there was an inward feeling, there was an ideology that the chemo was going to help you, you did state your intentions before the process started, that you listened to music that was designed to improve the healing process, you didn't watch TV, you couldn't read a magazine, nobody gave you drugs if you felt nauseous. Like it was, I think without a doubt, we could improve the, the effect and, and the outcome of people that have to get or are prescribed chemotherapy simply by changing the way that it's administered. And we have so much to learn from, from studying the tradition. And I'm so thankful, getting back to our own research, that people like Simon and Nigel like understand that. And I'm not, you know, they would know more, but I, I don't think many studies have been done the way that we're doing our study, which is in its natural setting. So to do to study ayahuasca the way that it is served, and and to me that's like a really really important part of it because it's it's opening the door to a new paradigm which to me is just essential if we're going to move forward with the way that science and especially medical science works we have to be open to looking at things from a new paradigm that doesn't just isolate. The physical aspects. It doesn't just look at it as a medicine as some sort of chemical concoction that has some particular interaction on our biology, but that also includes our emotional bodies and our mental states and even our spirits. But consciousness has to be a part of the future of understanding medicine. It's, it's baffling to me and kind of embarrassing that consciousness isn't given much, much more attention in our understanding of medicine. Yeah, uh, I, I probably I'm not really sure. I haven't seen it. But yeah, this looks like at this point that it is one of the only kind of studies which is done in this way. Um, are you aware of some other research going on? Because I'm not really. Uh... Well, I know that ICERs uh, was like teamed up with the Temple of the Way of Light, and it seemed like they were doing a, a huge, like qualitative study, but I never saw anything come of it. Okay. So I'm I'm not totally sure what what happened with that, or if that is happening. Um, that would be great. Yeah. But yeah. but regardless, like I, it's um. I mean, I just can't say it enough. Like if you continue to look, especially at psychedelics, if you continue to look at a psychedelic as a chemical experience, then we're, we're just going to miss out on a massive oh, yeah. potential. We'll miss oh, it yeah. all, basically. Yeah. And even the way that ayahuasca is described doesn't, it's not satisfying at all. You know, it's often described by Westerners as an orally activated dimethyltryptamine experience. Mm. And yeah, that, that's just completely unsatisfying to me. And, and disempowering and but it doesn't even make sense because there's no dmt in in the ayahuasca vine it, it's found in the admixture plant and yes. and just for the and there are tribes that don't use an admixture plant they have no dmt they drink ayahuasca and there's no dimethyltryptamine and they have visions and they ex experience healings so to try to reduce 
this medicine down to something where a bunch of tribes don't even have dimethyltryptamine. And if you if dimethyltryptamine was the most important part of the process, why would you name it after the the plant that doesn't have any dimethyltryptamine? I don't know. It's it yeah. just it seems very lacking. And and it's it's understandably lacking because the Western paradigm is also lacking. Um, you know, the Western paradigm decided at some point, which coincided actually with the, re, you know, the revolt of, uh, from religion. You know, there was kind of this concerted effort, let's stop allowing the oppression, the oppressive religious hierarchy to dictate what our reality is. And so let's create a, a new understanding based on fact. And so they started, you know, with like the stuff you can touch the stuff you can yeah. see. Yeah. And and that makes sense. But we kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater when we did that because spirit is really at the core. And now like 200 years later with quantum physics and things like that, we're coming back and being like, oh shit, consciousness, that's everything. Um, to yeah. the point where we, you know, we're literally wondering if there is such a thing as physical matter uh, or if it is not just a different pattern of consciousness. There, there are, I mean, different type of brews, which I think, uh, I mean, ayahuasca brew is not one thing, if I'm correct. It's just, I think different people make really different brews. Uh, uh, but when you uh, mentioned orally active DMT, I, I never thought of it like that. When I was, when I heard it, actually, I, I just thought that some people, um, you know, put dimethyltryptamine in the ayahuasca brew but ayahuasca itself had its own you know way of communication so um i mean it's it's in, it's it's interesting that how you're mentioning that probably you correct that some people want to you know hone it down to the one molecule like very neat and clean cookie cutter molecule maybe but um yeah, I, I never thought of uh, like this is another game of hierarchy of psychedelics where <laughs> what is uh, which one is more easily categorizable, so hence important. But yeah, I, I, I didn't thought in that direction. Well, I have my own understanding about it, which um, which I think is a, a kind of simple understanding. I, I don't think that dimethyltryptamine was a part of ayahuasca for a th thousands of years. It was just the vine, and that's all you needed. But humans living in the Amazon rainforest were existing on an on a animal level, you could say, of awareness. They were so, you know, there was, there was no like distinction between human activity and animal activity. Their awareness was, was incredibly high. Their sensory ability was incredibly high. So when they used ayahuasca, they had profound visions. But in recent years, since the Spanish conquistadors, since civilization started to essentially separate humankind from nature, there was a lowering of that awareness. There was a reduction of the spectrum of biological senses. And so 
it became harder to have the same experience with ayahuasca. And, that, and then this part, which plays completely into the mythology of ayahuasca, the vine, the spirit of the vine then said, go get this other plant or these other plants, you know, and mix them. And that will like help you to stay in communication with me. And that's when the dimethyltryptamine was essentially added. And so it's really the dimethyltryptamine I do acknowledge as being an amplifier of sensory perceptive ability, but the, the communication and spirit, uh, the central guidance and intuition and, and all of the insights are coming from the spirit of ayahuasca, which, you know, you, you, it's very, very rare to hear someone, you know, so chacruna would be the plant that, uh, contains dimethyltryptamine, most common admixture plant. It's very, very rare to hear someone say, yeah, I went to an ayahuasca ceremony last night and Chakruna taught me this. That You don't hear that very often. What you hear almost exclusively is I went to an ayahuasca ceremony last night and ayahuasca told me this. And they're talking about the vine. Mm. They're talking about the spirit of that plant, the consciousness of that plant. And so in that sense, like that's, basically how I view it is that the dimethyltryptamine does play an, an important role, albeit maybe not so necessary, but it does have, it makes the uh, experience more accessible, especially mm. to people who are too far removed from th their own natural instincts or their own natural awareness. When you say uh, that they explain, uh, when they are um, telling their experience, they're talking about the vine. You don't mean the word. I meant, like, if, if I'm correct, it, you mean the, the structure and the essence of their own experience, which other people are also sharing, is of ayahuasca. You can name that any, uh, whatever you would like. But that, that, that experience, because the name, name doesn't matter. I mean, it, it just could be that they, they might hear so let's imagine if they're having it some other place and they've never have said the word ayahuasca just right. said some other so you said that is that that's what i what you are mentioning that uh, that the that the the driving experience come from that specific essence which we call ayahuasca right well i mean again like it the way that you interpret something is going to be there's a million trillion ways you know um but because i've worked so closely with the shipibo like that's their the go-to essentially even if you're like hey i had a ceremony last night and i had a vision of a black panther and it came to me they'd say that was ayahuasca and if you say well i had then this hummingbird came and you're like that was ayahuasca. And then I saw my great grandfather and he came and like, that was ayahuasca. And like, Oh, I saw you in the ceremony. You came over and helped. That was ayahuasca. You know? So that's where I'm coming from is yeah, like, yeah, you course. hear it so often that ship ayahuasca comes in all these forms. You could put any word really. Um, you could think it was yourself, you know, yeah. which in a way yeah. we're all, you know, it, is there really that much of a separation? Yeah. Once, to me, once it's consciousness, consciousness is my favorite word, I guess, <laughs> because no one denies it. You know, no one says there's no such thing as consciousness, you know, and you don't, you're not a hippie if you believe in consciousness, mm -hmm. you know, you're not like any, 
level of intelligence or intellectuality or anything. Consciousness just is, it's undeniable. We all agree with it. And yet it's also kind of universal. You can like go into, you can like easily sneak a little Zen Buddhism in there, you know, when you say consciousness, because it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. You can even go into the realm of how plants can talk to you. Well, you know? here's, it's, it, this is exactly what I wanted to mention, that I never thought it's a difficult thing because, you know, if you're talking in a evolutionary biology realm where people are extremely uh, driven by papers and references and, and other scientific fields or, you know, not even scientific fields, just someone who's uh, not probably has any experience uh, I think it's, re I never find it hard to talk in these different modalities. I mean, not like even scientifically talking to plants is maybe seems, I don't know, maybe because of sixties, what, what some people perceive maybe, or what kind of our, um, very, tool and purpose-driven society have made us think that, and, and of course our obsession with a very uh, limited reality, which we think, or, or, or real. I mean, I don't even know how to access real, but we have this obsession, most of us, just, this is real and everything else is pretty much meaningless. And I don't even get it. I, don't, I just don't want to get into that. Let's just, let's just, let's just, um, I want to focus like, evolutionary point of views i mean you can easily see how you are evolving with these and they are our ancestors to be very honest and this is exactly how they have evolved if you see a behavior of how uh chili uh, chili works uh, or or how various different plant works on different species they are amazing in altering our neurochemistry and that's why it, all the medicines comes from plants. And then of course we have mycelium network and all of that talks to each other. So you don't have to use the word talk in the very sense of how we, I mean, how bizarre even this is, this is synesthesia where we actually make a sound and just like, and then it's a combination of you hearing, hitting, and then putting on symbols instantly. I mean, our language is a language of symbols. Uh, so I didn't find it hard that how, like if you eat a chili, it's actually just uh, mimicking the pain on you rather than actually you burning. So you're, you know that plants communicate to you through chemistry. I don't find it like, I, I just, even as a scientific point of view, I mean, I've heard uh, some of evolution biologists, even they say, than how you talk to plants uh, in these various ways. But once you know you come in these ceremonies, sometimes this word, uh, especially outside of someone who has not taken ayahuasca seems to be something, it's like a very, uh, it's just a, like it's just a imagination. Yes, probably it's fine, but I don't even mean in that level. It actually, literally you are taking the chemicals and then they are going into your neurology and literally like on very literal level if that's what matters you know if that's what matters to you that's exactly what is happening and you can call it talking you can call it communication and a lot of it in that manner um where where and 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 
now I come to actually, this is a good question I wanted to ask you is that I was saying that, you know, our languages of symbols and you must have experiences like how Icaros are more like vibration. And that's what I've heard that, that the language of plants is like vibrations and our language is symbols. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure how clear I am. And I guess that's where the preparation helps. And that's where some sort of Icaros and the shamans or someone over there, where there's a bridge of this translation of symbols and vibration. Is there, is there something to this? Uh, I mean, of course, you're going to be able to interpret it all the ways that you um, want to. I, my personal take on it would be I, the, the key takeaway from me um, of what you just said was that plants are our true ancestors on an evolutionary scale. It's kind of impossible to deny, although there is the, the outside like alien project theory. But, but most people would say that there were plants for billions of years. And, and then, you know, the last little period of time or whatever, all of these things developed, but plants were, gave birth to all of it. And, but where I would take it then is so plants have the most experience. They have the most wisdom, you know, they have just epic amounts of wisdom. We can go back our ancestry and we go back, what, a hundred thousand years. Their ancestry is like a million times our ancestry. And, um, and so to me, like they don't have limitations. We, we have limitations in the sense of what we require for communication, but I do not think that they do. They communicate on probably like the most complex holographic manner that we could possibly beyond our imagination. But, but we like to think that we're so smart and so because we haven't figured it out, we want to like impose some limitations on them. That's my personal view. Obviously, I have a little bit of a bias because I love plants so much. But I think that there's, you know, I, I think it's an understandable perspective. Um, and so vibration, sure. You know, I, I think that plants could just plant an idea into your head, uh, no pun intended. And and, you know, and, and you'd wake up with it and you might never know that a plant put it there, you know. Um, I, it's very possible that all of our ideas or the majority of them are happening that way. Um, but, but I would, you know, I, I guess that's where like consciousness is the, the magical word of it all, you know. Uh, I'm glad that you don't have any issue with thinking that plants communicate. Thankfully, there are now scientists um, that have kind of proven it. And there's been a lot of studies that show it. There's the heart math Institute and they've been doing some really cool scientific studies with trees talking, yeah. uh, Stephen Buner, Stephen Harrod Buner, who's like a hero of mine. He wrote plant intelligence and the imaginal realm. Uh, Jeremy Narby wrote intelligence in nature. And, um, so, you know, things are definitely like kind of, being tossed turned on their head or reverting back to our ancestral understanding and you know what better time to do it than where we're at right now yeah i mean, who, I, mean I don't like who am i to <laughs> think if plants can like i didn't 
invented anything. I was just born in this weird wiggly thing and I just started talking. It's like, who am I? But I mean, even on you're right, like it's it's good that on large scale where where uh, empirical evidence is somehow, you know, important for masses of uh, people to change the behavior, it is happening. And I mean, even if you believe on a very specific spectrum of the consciousness, even in that manner, yeah, you're right. There's there's been a lot of work done. Um, Okay, so uh, you you mentioned to me about... um, bioluminescent tree what i have no idea what what is this about <laughs> i wish i could tell you man i'll do, I'll do my best but okay. it's a it's a pretty magical mystery for everyone um but yeah there's a bioluminescent tree it's called noya rao uh, that's a shipibo term which literally means flying tree or flying <laughs> stick um and it's a, a like a mythological, just straight up mythological tree in the sense that there were stories of old in the Shipibo culture only. There's no Spanish word for the tree. There's no, that I know of, there's no word for the tree in any other language but Shipibo. And, and that's really because of these stories that because their culture was kept intact so well, especially with their plant medicine traditions, the stories also were intact and passed on from generation to generation about this tree that glowed in the dark. And, uh, and it was like capable of doing things. Its consciousness was, was so high that it was like capable of doing these amazing things. And if a shaman got to know the tree then they could like gain these amazing abilities, but that the tree had gone extinct. And, um, and that kind of ties into what I was saying with my theory about why the DMT plant was added. I, I like use that same explanation for why the tree went extinct. It wasn't that the tree went extinct. It was that the, the consciousness vibrational frequency like went down and either we couldn't see that it was glowing anymore because of the limitation of our sensory perceptive abilities or that the tree was also subjected to this, the, the lowering of consciousness through the creation of civilization or the oppression of conquistadors or however you want to look at that or a combination of all of it. And so the forest like lost some of its vibrational frequency and enlightenment became much more challenging to achieve because that's really how I view the tree is that it is an enlightened being mm-hmm. in the most literal sense because it literally produces light from within. Also in the most literal sense, it does not create a shadow because you don't create a shadow if you are the source of the light. And, and that is a way of, dis- of describing its spirit. Its spirit is literally the most truest sense of a a spirit made of light that casts no shadow that has no darkness and and that's a very rare find and and it's also a very rare find literally in the sense that that as far as i know the trees that we have on our properties are the only trees that are in existence which is a handful of trees seven trees Um, what is very very interesting about that is that it used to be three trees and but 
then as, well, it started with one tree, but then as we, we built our school around that tree and we had people coming from all over the world to connect with this tree, to do plant dietas, which is a way of connecting with the plant. And then we found another tree and then another tree and then another tree. And then the coranderos that I work with had made enough money so that they were three brothers. So they bought two other pieces of land and built their houses. And then after they started building their ceremony spaces and, and doing ceremony, they found trees in their backyards, which were not there before. And so it's not, I don't believe that it is a species of tree. I believe it is an, a, a level of attainment that a tree can achieve and most likely a plant could achieve also. And, and the message that the spirit wants to uh, provide us or guide us towards is that we also can achieve that state. Yeah. And that ties in perfectly because we have stories of enlightened beings that were humans yeah. also, yeah. you know? And uh, so it's easy to see that you might want to call it a different species, just mm -hmm. like probably if you encountered Buddha, you know, or Jesus Christ, you might say that's not a human being. Uh, if you believe that, um, you know, again, like it's almost the same idea that it's reserved to this mythological status because we only have the stories now. As far as I know, we don't have an enlightened being walking around. But I feel like what brought Noya Rao back was this change that we've kind of been alluding to where people didn't, people aren't looking at indigenous as inferior anymore. In fact, the term indigenous it almost has a, a superiority uh, inflection in it now. Like if you say someone's in indigenous in now are, are like first thoughts of that are like, Oh wow. You know, like, <laughs> like, like, Oh really? Like, can I meet that person? Like they've got wisdom in their cells. They've got like this wisdom that I don't have, you know? And that's very, very different. You go back just a couple of generations, even just one generation. And, we didn't think that way. If you were indigenous, maybe it was synonymous with like barbaric or or uh, savage or uneducated or whatever, you know. But that's not the reality anymore, and and it's flipped to the point where we have more respect for indigenous people than we do for ourselves. And the same way can be said about the Amazon rainforest specifically, but in many parts of nature, where before the Amazon rainforest awesome place to get trees, you know, awesome place to, <laughs> but what are the resources we can make money off of? But now it's so different where we will we'll pay money to not cut a tree down. Yeah. And, and to me, that's like raising the vibrational frequency of the forest and its inhabitants, where mm -hmm. we have whole organizations and teams of people devoting their lives to protecting the plants and the animals and the people of the Amazon rainforest. And so because of that, we have um, this yeah. increase in consciousness that it makes it possible to attain enlightened states. It's and, a, and to me, that that to me gives me a lot of hope that yeah. that we're doing that. If we keep working on that on a global scale, humankind will will also reach these points. And I think that we're also seeing that as well. Maybe we don't have a story of an enlightened being that living mm -hmm. on Earth that we know of yet, but we we do have people that are doing really great yes. you know well, maybe we don't call them enlightened but there's certainly some very very special people walking around these days for sure i mean there this because the trend of prophets have gone down uh, people have bad taste so i think 
that the people who are prophets now, that's the whole, I think, essence of their existence is that that's not what they now call either themselves or that's not what has been communicated. I mean, they're just working. Like, yeah, it's just some of, I'm sure some of them have been in the science field. Some of them are just somewhere in uh, where, you know, um, somewhere in jungle, maybe working with some people. So I'm sure some of them are uh, Buddhist meditative teachers. And uh, I, yeah, I agree with you. And uh, yeah, but, but it's a very interesting concept which you just mentioned about, of course, there could be an evolution in in trees it's itself, like overall. I mean, I am not that familiar. I haven't done ayahuasca until now. Uh, there, there is definitely have been um, a date, like a like a call after the trauma, and it was to do with the, pretty much the only person I few people I've heard of, and uh, Don Howard Lawler. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so when he actually passed away, I, I think just last year. Yeah, if I'm correct. So, I, I was planning to somehow go this year, and it was really shocking for just yeah I, I felt really um yeah sad at that point because i felt it that i need to go and i was writing you know my uh, intentions and things and process and then i heard but yeah so so i am not as as uh, at this like i don't know maybe you can access that uh, but not not really but the the world of um plants itself uh there there is i'm sure some sort of a flavor to it and then yeah this is this is a beautiful concept in that world where you have walked i'm sure a lot where you can see it from a very different eye uh some sort of an uncanny out there weirdness and weird when i say weird i meant weird is a very sacred word for me so I don't use it lightly at all. <laughs> truly, truly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, I, I must mention to you that um, in one of my last uh, MDMA sessions, uh, which was overdue, I, I this is actually very clear. Um, you want to call it message or just my own intention was to send you an email to do a podcast actually it was weird i was like what like out of blue <laughs> just that <laughs> like uh, so clear it was this line in my like it's, this is just like write this line on your outlook email and then send it to carl i was like huh that's that's <laughs> so of course i was thinking to do it as soon as this is Done, but that was, and there was all the things going on, you know, with the yeah. with the PTSD, and then there was just one standalone thing. I was like, oh, by the way, just get that done too. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, <laughs> yeah, that was weird. Yeah. Um. Oh, so well, I I have a a video series I did last year called Lessons from Ayahuasca. It's 10 episodes. It's on our Ayahuasca Foundation YouTube channel. It's also on our website in the review yeah. tab. And um, I don't know if you checked it out, but yeah. for anyone that like doesn't know much about Ayahuasca or 
doesn't think that they, you know, will be taking part in a ceremony or anything, or maybe don't feel ready to do that. I, I definitely encourage them to watch that because I, I tried to just condense, uh, you know, some of the most important lessons that I've gotten from my experiences with ayahuasca down into 10 basic, uh, lessons that I've learned. And I talked about them a little bit. Each episode's only like 10 or 15 minutes long. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, you're, you're right. I was talking to some of the people who are doing good work about sustainability or various different factions of rights and rights of animals and other people and, and environment. And, uh, but, um, it was interesting that um, how much they can help. I mean, how much they can definitely help right now. And it would be beautiful if they can integrate this view, what you know, just talked about, like a bit of a wider wisdom, whatever, overview effect, whatever you want to call it. And, and, and particularly sometimes it was hard for, for me like to communicate that to people who are extremely empathetic to to say that have you ever talked to plants i mean because how they sometimes talk about vegetation and plants was like really um something really static something just there to graze upon let's say and and i wanted to and i didn't want to of course uh, say it in a way that uh, which is like oh well this is the thing you know once you do that then you know everything because there's like so many different ways i mean i, I don't know but i did wanted to ask that have you talked to plants and the and the response was uh, yeah that that's that there is no thing like that you know, and that's why I wanted to even mention to it. And I mean, I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's a weird one where where uh, my heart sometimes is, you know, when I'm asked that and come back home, was just trying to like just send out these vibrations. Where it's like just once talk. I mean, talk to a plant and just listen. Just once, I mean, I can imagine that you are a beautiful being trying to help the world, but the the place sometimes they're coming from is really jittery and extremely full of fear and reactive, and in a way, as a savior, like me, the savior, and it's just fine. That's exactly what I did many times. That's that's all what our journeys are, but. There's a big thing just waiting there. And uh, I think especially those people would, please, once, there's a thing called talking. <laughs> just talk once, just just do it, probably. I mean, not for everyone. I'm not saying that everyone should do it. I'm not, you know what I mean? But it's just that someone who's so close to that experience, who's already so close to, you know, it, uh, taking care of environment and everything, is, is, I, I think it would, amazing to to have that love and then you know probably move forward you know there's a uh, i'm a huge fan of stephen harrod buner um and his book plant intelligence and the imaginal realm he's i mean he's a hero of mine he has a bunch of books to be honest and um he's just a, a 
fantastic person. And, but he had a very interesting um, statement and I, I can't quote it, but it was basically like, out of everyone, it's actually the environmentalists who lack the faith <laughs> that nature knows what it's doing, yeah. you know, and that they, they feel like they have to like uh, work so hard because the earth is going to die or something. And you know, like, the, we're talking the earth, like, you know how old and wise the earth is and you like kind of puny little human being can't see that there's a whole reason why the earth did all of this and that the earth knows exactly what's happening. And um, I really enjoyed the quote and it, it's something to me that, you know, I, no one knows what's going on. You know, it's, 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 it, that's kind of exciting. We don't know what's going on, but I love feeling better knowing or, or believe, choosing to believe that, yeah, the earth knows exactly what it's doing. And um, having faith in that, which my faith is pretty unshakable thanks to my experiences, I'm not going to be so worried about it. I'm not going to be so stressed out about it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I, I just had, because um, I've been gardening and gardening, what a great way to like talk to the plants. But of course, to make my garden, I had, I, I, it was, I'm at my father's house. So I like cleared a space um, where there was just a field. And not knowingly, I got a poison oak on my arm. And, and, you know, if you've ever had poison ivy or poison oak, it's like this little process, essentially, like, your body reacts to it and there's a, you could call it a poison and, and then it deals with it and then it goes away and it's not like dangerous or anything, but you, it's annoying. You know, there's kind of this annoying process and like on a massive macro scale, are we like just freaking out because there's a little bit of poison ivy on the world right now? You know what I mean? Like, is there, it, there's this little process and it's like, just going through the motions and yet like bubbles up and it's really itchy and you want to think about it all the time and, it, and, and scratch it, but you know, it will pass. Mm. And, and so, yeah, there's my big takeaway. That's true. Don't worry. This whole thing is just poison ivy on the <laughs> planet. Yeah. I mean, we are earth. I mean, unfortunately this is what, like, this is exactly, we are not like we just earth. I'm sure well yeah i don't want to throw more like put my view in but yeah i don't want to talk more but yeah it looks like we are definitely literally earth itself and uh and uh, it's hard to refute that yes yes i mean what what else so yeah i i, I believe definitely that uh the being part of earth um yeah and the part of this whole yeah I mean, like billions of year old the the, the planet itself so true i guess yeah yeah well anyway um is there anything else you want to uh, point to mention other than your videos or uh... Uh, well comically i want to add one little thing i made oh, a course. joke about extraterrestrials like creating the human race and to be totally honest like I don't know, you know, <laughs> yes, so yes, yes, yes. if you do happen to like, if anyone's listening and you're like, oh, he thinks he's so smart that aliens didn't create him. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I'm open, 
maybe extraterrestrials did, but then you just you just take a macro step back and realize that the galaxy is also a singular organism, or the universe is a singular organism. We're all part of whatever this organism is. It's all a living body. Yeah. Um, maybe the Earth is literally a single cell in the body of the universe, and yeah. most likely it is. Um, so I just wanted to get that out because Definitely. I believe in extraterrestrials. You know, I like have interacted with extraterrestrials in ayahuasca ceremonies at times as well. So I don't want to like shoot that down either. <laughs> no, it's no, all very not. fascinating and it's all True. really definitely weird. And True. I'm a huge fan of, and I'm definitely a weirdo. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean. Um, but yeah, to get back, um, if anybody is interested in ayahuasca retreats, the courses or the research that we're doing, they can visit the our website, ayahuascafoundation.org. And you can follow us on our social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And um, yeah, there's a, uh, you know, contact us form that goes straight to me on our website. So if you did, if anybody has a question or would like my take on something, uh, I try to respond to every single person that writes to me. So I'd be happy to do my best to, to give you my perspective on anything you want. Perfect. That's what I've heard that some most of the time ayahuasca mentions that or, or other plants that take care of your consciousness and I'll take care of the rest. So uh, probably that's that's a that's a humbling but also freeing experience to have that you really don't have to think about whole world. And I think it's a beautiful job um, or, or or service, whatever you considered to be that you are doing that um people who might not see any way at all uh, and a lot of them can actually have this place where they can book a ticket and physically go and talk and share and then not only just share and heal you gotta you gotta see the magic i mean not not in some uh, um just not 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 in a fantastic way, but definitely connect to the magic. So thanks a lot for doing it, truly. No worries, man. I mean, it's incredibly fulfilling. No matter what, I uh, one thing I know for sure is that when you're in service to others, you know, when you're doing something that you know or feel strongly is is a benefit to others, then there's just. Uh, a true satisfaction you you don't have any questions you know yeah. and that you can't really buy that and uh, you can't there's no price you can put on what it feels like to help someone or to have someone tell you that you saved their life that's a pretty valuable thing to have so even if um you know whatever you're doing try to include service to others in some way and and I guarantee you, you'll be happy you did. Perfect. Okay, so thanks a lot, Carlos. Thank you so much. And uh, okay, people, loads of love. Hopefully see you again. Bye.